What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album and the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? This is episode 8 of Meep Meep. I am Ryan Rainbow, and we are back on track this week, but off the rails, because our main event of the evening is none other than Black Train Jack's 1994 swan song, You're Not Alone. This comes hot off the heels of last week's epic conclusion to the Buzz Oven saga, but you know what comes after the Roadrunner, right? The Coyote! And this week's Coyote Corner is a real treat. Tad from an early RR entity, Toxic, with a K. Toxic put out two albums with The Bird, 1987's World Circus and 89's Think This, both illustrated by legendary artist Ed Repka, who is also known for his work with such Roadrunner illiterate alumni as Megadeth, who also can't spell, and say illiterate alumni five times fast, what a, what a skilled, articulate orator I am. Tad tells us about his love of Buzz Oven's Soar album we covered last week, as well as what it was like being a Roadrunner band in the 80s. Let's find out more about that now. So last week, we talked about Buzz Oven's 1994 album Soar and the legacy that it has. And with me this week to kind of reflect on the band and the influence it may or may not have had on him is a former Roadrunner Records artist himself, Tad, from the band Toxic, who... Uh, came in right on the cusp of Road Racer becoming Road Runner. Their album kind of predates the timeline of the Meep Meep show, but his interaction with Buzz Oven's Sore album does not. So we're going to talk about that. Ted, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. And I, I know we'll definitely talk about the Toxic album in the future. But in the meantime, I did want to talk to you about Buzz Oven and their album Sore. You were a fan of the band at this time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at the time, you know, Toxic was on Roadrunner. So every time I came in, you know, I'd, I'd look and see, you know, what bands they had. And, you know, people were usually generous and would give me copies. And, uh, yeah, The Soar was definitely like a record that really stood out to me because there just wasn't there wasn't many bands doing that, you know, mixing that kind of like Sabbath heaviness with like, you know, like a really nasty, you know, noise, hardcore you know, type vocal approach, which later, you know, I Hate God got really well known for, but Buzz Oven, you know, like predated them by many years. Yeah, it's a, a point that I probably didn't drive home enough in the episode is as much as they are a sound that did become more prevalent not too long after this album came out, there really wasn't, you know, they're often referred to as like sludge metal that really didn't exist before they 
made this album. I mean, they're definitely pioneers of that kind of stoner rock with the heaviness and the the punk aesthetic. And, you know, they do have fast songs and fast parts. So that is a, a great point to make that they were a little ahead of their time as far as how that would develop with uh, I Hate God, you mentioned. Neurosis was already a band, I think, but not quite taken off in the same way that they did a little bit later in the 90s. So uh, that's that's definitely a great, great aspect of this record that it's uh, a little bit of a pioneering album and a little bit ahead of its time in that aspect. And I thought, you know, we definitely like, it has, you know, a vibe. I don't know if you want to call it like a redneck vibe or a backwoods, you know, type of style. And that, that was also something you just really didn't see. Like you see it all over the place now. Like that's like a defined genre. But back then, you know, that was like really something cool to listen to. Like, I love that. I forget which song it is. There's a sample of this cop who's pulled up where another guy's like, oh, was I speeding? He's like, no. It's like, did I run something? It's like, no. It's like, I just don't like your face. And that's <laughs> something, you know, that someone in, like, North Carolina, South, in the South would say. Like, you know, you'd never hear a New York cop say that. The samples, of course, I know you're a big uh, horror movie guy. There's horror samples all over this, which wasn't a huge thing. It wasn't like it hadn't been done. But the Southern influence, you know, Roadrunner at this time, especially... Uh, 93, 94, and earlier than that, are mainly New York bands. I think even your band, Toxic, was from New York as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then you had, you know, like Hawker Records, who, like, really supported, you know, the punk scene. Like I said, they had the Heads Up and Token Entry. And uh, the guy, I think it was John Hawker, was the, was the name of the guy. Who ran yeah, John that. Bellow. Yeah, that's a guy, like, I, I always talked to when I went into the office. I thought he was, like, really one of the cooler people working there you know he was very real and you could tell he was you know really serious about you know supporting these bands and getting them you know as many uh fans as possible did you ever get to see buzz oven on this this uh album cycle when they were just really beating the hell out of each other oh no you know like back then it was it was it wasn't that easy to see like who was playing where you know you really could only if you got like you know a paper from the city like the village voice or something because it's not like how you could go to you know, whatever the mall and see, you know, a flyer, you'd actually have to be in like Manhattan or like, you know, really be into the scene to know. So unfortunately, you know, like you would miss tons of bands just because, you know, that you couldn't get the word out in a big way back then. Yeah, it is a completely different time. Of course, it, it goes without saying just the internet being so prevalent. But even back then, unless you saw a print ad for a show or a flyer or that was handed to you directly from another human being you didn't know about shows that's just how it was yeah and you know like it's probably because you know i'm a grumpy like old man now i kind of feel like those in a way those times were better because there was there was like a bar that you had to to reach you know if you actually wanted to be part of that you couldn't just like sit down in front of a computer you know and learn everything you need to know about any band you want back then like you had to truck out to you know to the city to the record stores or if you lived you know in more remote places you had to write and trade tapes and that was like you know a commitment so like you know i think a lot of the people in the scene back there were you know really serious now i know you didn't see them on this album cycle in general but any other sort of show experiences you would have had with buzz oven because they're still a band to this day technically yeah, uh, well, you know, when um, when I was playing with Blood Farmers, we went over to Europe in 2011, and I saw the buzz oven was on the bill, and I was like, oh, great, I'm finally going to see these guys, and then they canceled, and ironically, like, we ended up, like, taking their slot. We were set for Sunday, and I think they were supposed to play 
Thursday night and you know the the promoter is like, well, do you want to play Thursday night? We're like, oh hell yeah, we'll do two nights at Roadburn. But you know, I felt bad because Roadburn is a really hard festival to get in, man. I mean, people are chopping at the bit, so to see them miss that, I felt really bad for them. So you toured Europe with Blood Farmers. Did you ever tour Europe with Toxic also? Yeah, yeah, I went to Europe twice with uh, Toxic. You know, once for World Circus, the first album, and then again after I Think This. Well, if there's one thing I, I definitely should mention, especially like back in those days, the scene in like Holland, those people were just like so ahead of the curve. Like, you know, a lot of other countries or something, they'll see like, well, if it's big in America, then they'll check it out. You know, it must be legit. People, especially like in Holland, they don't look at that at all. They just like, they pick up bands that they like and they say, this band rules and we want them. And like, you know, like when Toxic first played there, you know, we had only, that record was, I don't know. Well, I don't think it was even like four or five months out and we get to play this huge festival at Dynamo Open Air and these people are like chanting Toxic, like we, you know, like we're like Metallica or something. And I was like, wow, this is like such a, you know, an independent thinking place in terms of like what music they like and it's still that way now you've got a band like a, a festival like roadburn which is like it's like a taste making festival now like people see that a band has played roadburn they're going to look into them well yeah so let's let's talk about toxic so toxic gets signed to roadrunner in 87 is that right um yeah it might have been 86 but yeah the album came out in 87 and so Roadrunner is just breaking out into the U.S. market. They've set up their office in New York. How did you get on Roadrunner slash Road Racers radar at this time? Yeah, well, I think they, they, Toxic first got noticed actually before I was in the band. There was another drummer in the band before me. And um, I guess they got the, the Toxic demo, which, which was a really good demo. They got that. And I, I think, though, a big factor, though, that like two of the the women that, that were initially wanted to sign Toxic, they they, they, they were interested because they thought the guys were hot. <laughs> and the drummer was one of those guys, and I replaced him, and I'm definitely not hot. So that Roadrunner probably was really upset about that. But, <laughs> they were upset about the aesthetic being ruined by you? I'm sure you're a good-looking guy, Ted. To the ladies, we'll do I a poll. I have the hair and the hunky physique. I just, I just wasn't there. But I, I guess I, I played drums a little better than that guy. But, um, but yeah, Toxic had, we had offers from Roadrunner and also uh, Metal Blade. And we went with Roadrunner because we really did like the uh, women. This uh, Holly Michaels, who unfortunately just uh, passed away, was like the main A&R person there. And she was just so awesome and so, you know, smart. Like, we really, really had confidence in her. And, you know, and they were here in New York. So we figured, you know, things get really bad. We could actually physically reach them at the office and, you know, confront them. And I don't know, I don't know who was the right choice or not, but, you know, they got the records out and, you know, that really, like, opened up some great stuff for us. You know, we got to go to Europe and really get some appreciation there. They didn't do, like, well, but the, the problem, the, like, one of the first things that came over Toxic, like, the band was definitely, like, under a black cloud for so much, so much stuff. When, so the band got signed, I, I replaced the drummer, then we went down did the record but by the time we finished recording that woman holly had left and then there was no one at the roadrunner office who gave a crap about toxic like no one was interested like john bella was into hardcore 
you know, Monty Connor, other main guy was, you know, much more into, you know, Sepultura and bands like that. So we had like no one at that office who cared. And if it wasn't for like these people in Holland who like, you know, offered to get us touring and stuff, we really wouldn't have done much. Toxic sounds more like an 80s band than a 90s band. And you're coming in on the tail end of the 80s. Do you think that that was a main factor? Because, I mean, you're still a metal band and the bands you're mentioning are also metal. You think it's just a little bit more retro than what they were looking for at the time? No, I think really um, what hurt us at the time was there weren't that many bands. Like back then, you were kind of like you either had, you know, like the Slayer side of things or say like a band's like Queensryche. You had bands, you know, that were melodic, but, you know, usually a little bit lighter or more commercial. And then the alternative to that was, you know, really extreme metal. And we were kind of like somewhat in the middle of that. Like now you hear if there's, you know, tons of bands you know, all these prog bands, Dream Theater, Epica, and whoever you want to name. And they mix a lot of, like, heavier stuff with, like, prog and, and melodic stuff. But back then, you know, there really weren't that many bands. And we just, like, you know, we didn't strike, you know, a chord that big with either camp. The first record that comes out, World Circus, did Roadrunner set you guys up with any sort of producer or something for that? Yeah, they um, they set us up with a, a studio down in Florida called Mora Sound, and if you look into there, I mean, like that that studio was you know like so many legendary metal bands uh, played there, and like iconic albums were made there, and um, we really you know we did like the the sound that we heard. Like most New York bands went to uh, Pyramid Sound up in. Ithaca, but we're like we, you know, we wanted to try and get our own tone, and we definitely like made the right decision to go down there. We started with this producer. Oh, damn, I can't forget his name now. Originally, he'd worked with this other band, Crimson Glory, who like a lot of us were pretty successful like prog band at the time. But we ended up working with the guy who owned the studio, Tom Morris, proper, and he was just an amazing guy. Like he totally got into. The music he really saw like what we wanted to do and that guy and also uh scott burns who um was the engineer and he went on to like producing the bigger like sepultura records and you know really became like a very successful producer so we were just in amazingly good hands for uh for both of those records what kind of bands did you tour with either in the u.s or europe when you're touring these album cycles Oh yeah, well actually, no. Ne- neither the New York office or the offices in uh, in Holland really cared about Toxic. We the only the people who approached us were like this guy Andre Verhusen, who you actually see. Um, there's a really great documentary out now called Murder on the Front Row, and it's all about the San Francisco Bay Area scene with like bands like Exodus and Metallica. And Andre was the guy who brought like Metallica over to Europe for the first time, and also toxic he you know he had a great year for like upcoming bands so it was all thanks to him who got us in to play these big festivals and then do these tours we um that on the festivals we played with some, some really uh you know great bands like when we when toxic played uh the dynamo open air and i think it's 88 yeah we played with candle mass and uh exodus were the headliner but for the low for just like the regular club shows, we would play with like local uh, bands, both both uh, Dutch bands, 
So what would you say Roadrunner did do for you other than just releasing the album and, and setting you up in the studio? Uh, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the extent. <laughs> it was basically like going to a bank, you know, like loan you enough money for a record and then they own all your songs and you never see anything again. That was pretty much the agreement. The only, like, the only thing that we actually like, did well with was uh, when we, we got offered by uh, King Diamond to tour with him. Uh, we had met him a couple of years before and just really hit it off. And like, and, and Roadrunner actually went, when King Diamond called Roadrunner and said, you know, I want to bring out Toxic for US tour, they were like, no, no, you don't want to work with Toxic. Pick someone else. They're much better bands. But King Diamond like insisted, he's like, nope, I want this band. And, you know, he just really, really it was such a, a classy gent, man. He really helped us out in so many ways. So mad props to King Diamond and uh, Andy and Snowy and his band, too. They're all like top, top shelf people. So Roadrunner told King Diamond not to work with you? Is that true? They literally said, no, you don't want to work with Toxic. <laughs> What uh, would you have done differently? But I'm guessing signed with Metal Blade would have been the answer to that. Or maybe you can correct me on that. I, I honestly don't know. I, I did meet Brian Slagle briefly, actually, when I was working at Red, and he seemed like a super cool guy. But, you know, you never know. Sometimes even when people do have good intentions at labels, things things don't work out. It's a giant crapshoot. You, know, you definitely don't want to get into making original, like, heavy music unless, you know, that's just legitimately what you love to do a steady paying job it's not going to happen you got to do it it's just like owning like a high performance car you know it's a money pit you know you do it because you love it what's your fondest memory of putting these records out on roadrunner there's lots of bad ones <laughs> one one highlight to me i guess it's kind of like an obscure moment was we uh when we played that festival in 1988 Hall the dynamo open air it was like, like thirty people there and I was a huge fan, a huge fan of this band called uh, Satan from England. They were kind of like a new wave of British heavy metal type of band, like really, really great. And they just happened to be hanging out there. And someone introduced me to the guitar player, Steve Ramsey. And I was like, oh, dude, you know, I'm a huge fan. and I love this and that. I was like, you know, my name's Tad. I play in Toxic. It's like, oh, yeah, I've heard that record. It's like, that's really great. And like to have this guy like tell me he knows, you know, what I've done and he knows my band was just like a mind blowing thing. You know, when you get to meet your peers and they're actually like aware of you. So that was definitely a highlight for me. And, you know, it was definitely through being associated with runner road runner that we did get to uh, meet King diamond and, and the guys from merciful fate, you know, with like Michael Denner and Timmy grabber. And that was just like unreal to me. You know, I, I absolutely worshiped like merciful fate and was, it's like my favorite, you know, metal band in the world back then. And so when we uh, when we toured with King Diamond, I had the opportunity, like every time we'd be at the same truck stop, I would, you know, like assault him with like merciful fake questions. And he was always like so polite and puts up with and with with all of them, you know, and gave me some great stories. And he actually like put me on to some great bands too. There's the seventies band called uh, Captain Beyond. It's like King Diamond doesn't listen to anything new i think the only thing current he was listening to was like queens at the time like he's a total 70s guy and he put me on some great bands especially captain beyond or like their first album is like the most perfect like heavy rock album like ever made and you know so many people like don't even really 
are not aware of them because they were sort of off the grid to, you know, other bigger 70s bands. Now, do you refer to him as King Diamond when you see him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, what's up, King? He's the king. Yes, you call him the king. Yeah, he's like such a cool guy. Like, we had multiple disasters on the tour. Before we even started, um, a friend of ours got a a box truck rented, you know, so we could, like, put all our amps and gear in there for the tour, and then we'd ride the van. And just as he was coming home, he went under a low-hanging tree, and it peeled off the top of the truck like a can opener. Oh, we're like, whoa, okay, we're done before we even get started. We told King Diamond, he's like, no problem. Put your stuff in my truck, and you're good to go. We're like, wow. And so we got to, like, hang out and watch movies with King Diamond on his tour bus, and that was, like, the dopest thing ever. Well, I definitely like guys that paint their face, which reminds me of this cover that's on the re-release of the World Circus album of Kiss Parasite. Did you play on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were big, big Kiss fans. We just passed the 45th anniversary, I believe, of Kiss Alive. Yes. What is your favorite Paul Stanley banter from a Kiss Alive album? I think I definitely like, I love his banter before uh, Cold Gin. I was talking to some people backstage, (laughs) and they said, you guys like to drink a lot of vodka with orange juice. (laughs) I was, you know, I was listening to that, I was like, man, I was like, Paul Stanley could have been like a great, like, preacher. And I said, oh, Lord, are you ready? Are you ready to love Jesus? Do you have any experiences where, you know, because you're on this bigger label, Roadrunner, of course, where maybe some bands that were up and coming ended up opening for you that would later go on to do crazy things? Well, that's the band, the event that would fit that would be uh, Pantera. We uh, we used to play this club, uh, Streets, was kind of like our, our hometown place. It was, you know, it was a great place. It's where, like, anyone, like, you know, Danzig, the Crumb Suckers, Nuclear Assault, they would all play at Streets. And so, you know, we're setting up and... Someone mentions the opening band is Pantera. I was like, Pantera? I was like, isn't that the chick who sings with Thor? You know, Thor, like the big, like muscle bound guy who like had like a metal, bunch of metal albums. I think he was in a movie too. But then I'm like, no, no, it's, you know, some band from Texas. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then it's, uh, yeah, the guys from Pantera came in and actually, and we bonded on Kiss because, you know, Daryl had Kiss painted on one of his guitars. So, you know, we got along. I got along with like Phil was super, super nice. You know, we were into same, some of the same bands from uh, Louisiana, from New Orleans. And, uh, and they actually, they pretty much kicked our ass that night, man. They got up and were just amazing. You could tell like, you know, they just like, they had it, man. That band had it together. And this is when they were in their like hair metal phase though, right? Yeah, that's when they were touring for that album, Power Metal, which I think is, you know, like the first one that Phil came in on. Which is and actually me and uh, me and my my roommate for years we we had our record store and we had a a poster you know that the guys from Pantera gave me with like their big hair and stuff and we put that like right you know just as you walked in the door from the record store that poster was like the first thing you'd see and Pantera fans hated seeing that you know they did not want to admit that Pantera like were not the heaviest band in the world you know at all times. You mentioned having that poster from Pantera. You know, I'm kind of famously what some people call a hoarder, but I just call it keeping all my cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you have any really sick memorabilia or uh, keepsakes from your time touring with Toxic? 
just just uh, just a few, you know, like we took some pictures there, which I still have and still have my leather jacket that I had when we toured with King Diamond. And it's got, you know, like my all access like patch, you know, still like attached to my jacket. I held on to that. Those those are like two that I can remember that I still uh, I still have. Well, I know Toxic was a long time ago, but are you still playing music now or do you still keep up with those guys? I am doing some new music now. I've got my own band, you know, like usually I'm known as the, the drummer, but for a while I've been uh, writing a lot of uh, material and I started my own project called uh, Lucitola. And actually the first uh, release that I did, Josh from Toxic, the guitar player, he, he helped me out. He did the vocals and some guitar solos and produced. He, he did a great job, but now it's a, uh, me and another friend of mine were basically doing, you know, all the new music and we're going to do, you know, the keys, guitars, bass and drums. And then my plan is to have other like, you know, musician friends of mine come in and do, you know, vocals on various songs and guitar and some other stuff. So I'm hoping the next Lucid Toll is going to be like a really great release with some of my, you know, my best friends involved. And, you know, it's definitely some people who are, you know, well known in metal. But I'm super grateful for the time I had in Toxic. Like, all those guys were so insanely talented, you know. It was like a real privilege to be playing with them. Mad respect to Tad for sharing those memories with us. And look out for that Lucertola record coming sooner than later. Also, with the growing crossover of this show's guests and the horror community... I'd be remiss to omit Tad's resume with graphic design for Grindhouse, so feel free to check out his awesome illustrations on the World Wide Web. And hey, while you're browsing, go ahead and bookmark truenutrition.com, this week's sponsor. True Nutrition is a protein and supplement company I've used for years, and once you try them, you'll see why. With vegan protein options and a wide array of delicious flavors, the only thing better than the product is the price! But that's even about to improve for you as well, because with promo code RAINBRO, you'll save 5% off your entire order. And usually they start loading up the holiday flavors, so you can still be on theme in time to go to truenutrition.com today and make it yours. That brings us to this week's album, Black Train Jacks, You're Not Alone, released on July 21st, 1994. Black Train Jack are true innovators in aggressive music with their brand of punkish hardcore that never shies away from pop sensibilities or a positive message, despite being named after a lyric from grumpy old man Henry Rollins. Brian from Black Train Jack was kind enough to talk with me about the formation of the band, the making of this album, and the Spin Doctors. Let's go to Brian. Black Train Jack is by far the number one requested band that people ask me to do so i know there's people out there that probably already know the story but uh, a huge part of the show is you know new people being exposed to albums they never heard before that came out a long time ago so you started off as a roadie with ernie who ended up being the guitar player for black train jack uh in his yeah. band token entry and after token entry ended you guys you rob and ernie decided to start a band to continue doing music together yeah, well, Rob was also a roadie. That's how we all became friends and tight with each other. And then when when Token Entry was playing, me, Ernie, Rob, and Timmy Chunks, 
had like this other pretend band where we would just, you know, play a song after the token entry set, you know, and then that's what eventually turned into Black Train Jack. Now, the album You're Not Alone is on Roadrunner. Of course, the album before No Reward also on Roadrunner. They're only about a year apart, which is a pretty quick uh, turnaround. Mm -hmm. I know that Token Entry was on Hawker, which was an imprint of Roadrunner. Is that directly what led to the relationship with Roadrunner or were there other labels interested? No, that was that was the direct thing. Like that's that was the most obvious choice for us to go to, and you know we knew the people there, and and at the time, you know we we knew what they did, and we they were they wanted to expand their repertoire. You know we we knew them as you know that when it came to Roadrunner, Roadrunner that was a metal label. You know like what are we doing? But you know with the Hawker backgrounds, we figured it would work out, and so we did it. Now, is there a uh, was there pressure from the label? You know that, like I said, ninety three is no reward. Ninety four is you're not alone. So, is there a reason that it was such a quick, uh, quick response to putting out another record after no reward? No, well, we had the material, and you know, that's what we did. Okay, <laughs> you know, there was no, there was no, uh, there was no like you got to get another record out now. I mean, at least not that I was privy to. And you know, as is usually the case, you know, the bass player and the drummer are the guys in the background like oh show up here and play okay no reward is self-produced by the band but steve hagler comes in to produce you're not alone is that roadrunner also influence or that's something you guys sought out steve to do this record no i know i know we'd known about steve hagler and ernie wanted him to produce we had we had production guys on no reward too it was a different crew and you know they were from the studio that we worked on and it was great um so it wasn't really self-produced but yeah, Steve Hagler was, was a known entity at the time, and he was fantastic. Yeah, so he's fresh off of doing Slip by Quicksand. Earlier in 94, for Roadrunner, he does the Die Monster Die album, and then he uh, does your album, and then later on also halfway worked on Karma to Burn's record. But the difference between the two albums as far as sound-wise, as far as the songs go, I should say, is mm-hmm. No Reward seems a little bit more aggressive or maybe leaning towards that more hardcore side whereas you're not alone is i guess for lack of a better word it's poppier the vocals are definitely cleaner you know there's not as mm-hmm. much uh, aggression and i think that's probably also because rob it's well known as like this super talented uh trained professional four octave singer so was that part of steve's direction or that was something you guys wanted to bring out on that second record also no that that's what we wanted to bring out and that was also the direction you know with, with you know, with no question, we all contributed to what was going on. Ernie was like the, the 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 music guy. You know, he was the one who had the initial ideas for songs, and we all built up on them. And he was that's the direction he was going in. You know, they were things were getting a little bit more melodic, and and uh, you know, and also that fits Rob's vocal style better too. Sure. So that's where it went. You're not alone. In retrospect kind of sounds like a pop punk album but really pop punk doesn't exist in 94 like we know it today you know uh green day had just put out their big album earlier this year and the huge difference i think that people may not understand hearing this record now is you're playing this very pop punk style music and you're playing it in the same scene as hardcore bands and Hardcore and pop punk are kind of the same thing these days, but in 94, that was not the case. It was, you know, a good decade before they would kind of merge like they are now. Was that ever intimidating for you to be in this more, uh, you know, pop driven band playing with these more aggressive bands? No, it was it was all natural. I mean, the New York scene was so homogenous then 
Um, I mean, you didn't have this level of violence. You didn't have, I mean, there was aggression and anger that was always there and that's what was coming out in the music. But I mean, you know, token entry had played with these bands. These were, some of these guys were childhood friends of Ernie's when he was growing up in Astoria, you know, and we, you know, we all just played together on the same scene. You could, you could have, you know, sick of it all in black train Jack and, you know, it would, it, it was fine the, the people, you know, there were some people who were like, what's this crap? But overall it was, just, <laughs> it was, it was accepted. And the guys in the bands, you know, we loved their music and they loved ours. It was, it was nice to have some diversity there. To me, that, that made it even more special. It was so cool to, to be like the odd man out, but still, you know, part of that scene as much as anybody else. Yeah, I guess that's definitely an advantage is that you're definitely sticking out when somebody's going to see this lineup. Black Train Jack doesn't sound like the other bands on the bill. But I think that's the main point that I really want to drive home with talking to you, just to people that may be listening, is that this album maybe now doesn't sound as innovative as it as it was back then. But in 94, having this very pop sound with this aggressive music and these these sung vocals, you know, it's just it's really a, a different different time and place and a different sound entirely in 94. And I just think that that's so cool to see kind of those origins, because like I said, it's just, it's this huge thing. Now pop punk, of course, exploded onto the scene later on. But if mm. we even think about, um, I'm sure a band that you're probably friends with H2O, you know, they're yeah. not doing this kind of sound or ironic pop covers like the Steve Miller band thing until like <laughs> yeah. 2001. So right. uh, I, I think that that's, that's a, a thing that can't be understated just how, special it was at the time when this record came out yeah it makes it it definitely makes it more unique and listening to it today you could just pass it by saying well you know it's nice you know rudimentary pop punk stuff whatever but you know at the time it was definitely it definitely something different you know i remember when dookie came out which you know fantastic record but we were like oh there you go you know it, it's, it's it's you know it, it was uh it was great and the guys in green day were great dudes you know um and we were we were stoked for them and we were like boy this is definitely uh you know this could this could be a good time to be doing this music as far as people liking it because that that intro, that that's what blew up pop punk right 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 well and even it's using dookie and going yeah. going back to h2o because they are two different time frames dookie comes out like you said 94 but they are ultimately rejected by the punk scene of course they're embraced by mainstream music and i'm sure that's what they cared about at the time but you guys are being embraced by the hardcore community while doing this similar sound and i think right. that speaks to the authenticity of the music as well not that green day wasn't authentic they were being true to themselves but they definitely weren't embraced in the same way you guys were and then if we think about the go record that h2o did years later kind of mm -hmm. again before pop punk and hardcore become this homogenous scene they kind of had to go and tour with pop punk bands. They weren't playing with the sick of it alls and things like that in that era. I know that years later and years before, they're definitely mm -hmm. a part of that scene a lot more. So I just I I think that that really speaks to personalities. You know, I know Ernie had that those credentials with his mm -hmm. long list of credits, and then you and Rob as well. I'd like to talk about some songs on the album itself. I know the the lead song handouts. You guys did a music video for. What was that like? That was great. It was just, you know, it, that's what you did. And that's what Roadrunner wanted us to do. And it was fun, you know. It, you know, we got this guy, Toby Tilly. That he was, you know, an up-and-coming guy then, and he was awesome. And it was just, you know, most of it was just us playing live in different weird spots, you know. It was a, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, we and but at that time, 
you know, you caught heat for that. You know, there were a lot of people that were like, oh, you effing sellouts. You know, yeah, okay, sellouts. You want to loan me 50 bucks for my rent? But uh, but that's that's what the overarching vibe was at the time, was if you had that, you know, you were obviously, you know, making millions of dollars and you were away from the, you're moving away from the scene. But it was a great experience. We loved it. I and mean, we had so much fun with that band. On the single that I have for handouts, there's another version of the song that's just like a... a a smorgasbord of people singing the song instead. Can you tell me who's doing the vocals on that? It's a three-track single, but the fourth track that's not listed is called, like, the choir version or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was just, I mean, it was just fun, right? It was just having friends of ours come in and bust out lines to the song. But you don't remember who, uh, who was a part of it? Oh, my God. Off the top of my head, I'd have to really, I'd have to really go back and figure that one out oh uh, yeah i mean it's just clearly you know it's clearly in fun it's people like kind of almost like sarcastically singing the song and stuff it's not meant for you know a radio single or something like that no, but it's, it's... just these these are our friends so it was probably you know like siv jesse mallon lou kohler yeah but all the people that we had been working with and touring with and doing stuff with probably came in and you know had a little piece of it so track three on the album is a cover of steve miller's the Joker. Mm-hmm. Why was that not the single? Well, because it's not our song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but it actually that that song actually, unbeknownst to us, I mean, I don't remember the the reason why we ended up doing that song. You know, Ernie came up with it. We were talking about it. It was fun. We'd thrown a few things around, but when we toured Europe, like we played that song, and the place went crazy. We were like, "What the hell?" I mean, it's not that great, you know. Um, so, but what ended up happening is there was like a really, really popular TV ad in Europe at the time, I think for like a watch or something like that. And they used that song. So when we played it, it was so familiar to everybody that the place went nuts. So it was a total coincidence. And we're like, oh, you know, okay, so maybe we're not that great. It's just they really like this song because <laughs> of, of a commercial. But it, it was pretty funny. It was just, I remember that being like a surprise on tour. I thought it was interesting that that song is on here only because you guys are like borderline a straight edge band at the time and you're mm-hmm. singing a song that's talking about smoking weed at midnight. Yeah, well, you know, well, maybe it's smoking weed. Maybe it's to be taken as, you know, smoking uh, something more natural. I'm trying to come up with something stupid. <laughs> no, I, I, it was just it was just fun. And, and we 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 weren't. You know, like I, I didn't drink or do anything. Rob didn't. Ernie didn't. You know, Nick at the time didn't. We weren't, but we weren't like we all, at least me, Ernie and, and Rob came up in the straight edge movement. So we were, but we weren't like, Rah! right. You know, it was just, it's, it's what we, it's who we were. And that, that's it. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think that you were, <laughs> you broke hedge because you sang the song. I just thought that no. that was an interesting uh, song choice for a band that has other lyrics that are borderline, you know. anti-drug yeah and you know what but it's it was that's a great song and it was a great time doing it and uh you know we didn't we didn't view it as like you know oh boy you know it's a song dude you know it's a good one so and it's that's it 
the uh, vocals on it very much are reminiscent of like the Spin Doctors, which were kind of a. Uh... I think the Spin Doctors were more like "You're Not Alone" on that song. Oh, okay, That's, all right. You know, I because the never the two crossed, and I and I definitely I can 100% guarantee that no one in that studio is thinking, "Yeah, man, let's give this a little Spin Doctors vibe," because that's you know that was not the case. <laughs> Well, I spoke to Steve Hagler, and he said that it definitely was deliberately spin well, that must, When I was taking a crap, that's what happened then, because, you know, I wasn't aware of that part. What's the deal and the reason both have the Kohler brothers? Actually, I think maybe all of Sick of It All doing yes. background vocals. Uh, that just was, was it they just happened to be hanging out, and you wanted a little bit more aggressive uh, chorus going on with the background no. vocals? We were always super tight with them. You know, our first European tour was with them. We played plenty of shows with them in the States too. We were just always good friends. We had some, shared some really good times with those guys. And anytime they roll through town, we always, you know, try to try to get out to see him and say hello. So, uh, but I got to check it out. The song Backup has a kind of a instrumental intro into it. And then also has a heavier, I guess, chug for lack of a better, Term, um, than a yeah. lot of the other songs on here were there certain aspects of doing this album where you wanted to make sure you maintained that uh, that hardcore sensibility or it all just was kind of organically that's just the music you guys wrote and it sometimes was a little bit more uh, hardcore and sometimes a little bit poppier I think it, it was just organic there was never like a design unless you know and again Ernie was principally the one coming up with like the melodies to start out with at least and he was, you know, he's the guy's an incredible artistic talent. And there may have been something, but the way it seemed to progress from my perspective was it was just organic. You know, some it was whatever we were feeling. Some songs came out, you know, and when Nick was doing the drums, it was, you know, just very, just very heavy and driving. And we followed along with that. It wasn't like, you know, there was never... We'd get in the studio and just play stuff together, you know, and, and give each other a little, hey, try this, try, what about this, what about this, what about this? You know, and Rob would come up with lyrics or Ernie would come up with lyrics. And it was never like, hey, we need we need to sound more like this, you know? So it just, I think it just came out. It wasn't like, oh boy, you know, we're getting away from that. We got to do this. That was never a part of it. What kind of influence do you think that uh, Steve Hagler had on the band or the album? Um, just really, you know, being very polished you know the guy the guy knew his stuff he knew how to derive great sounds out of the band that we may not have been able to come up with ourselves that we didn't think about as far as utilizing different equipment and and combinations of things and putting stuff together so he he was you know he and ernie in particular worked very well together as far as keeping the integrity of what we were putting out there. But as far as just developing a heavy, heavy sound, a, a powerful, a powerful sound, he was very influential. If he said something I'm like, okay, man, let's try it. You know, <laughs> right. like, like, you know, playing through a, I forgot what the cabinet it was, but like the speaker spins around in there. It, it, it makes the, the bass like instead of like a, because the speaker spinning in there, uh -huh. used that. He's like, yeah, try this cabinet out. We tried it. It was super cool. So, you know, in, influential in the fact that, you know, he, he, he drove us to get a, you know, the, the most we could out of our sound at the time. You mentioned uh, jamming kind of in the studio. Is that what resulted in Mr. Walsh blues? Is that just kind of like an in-studio jam? Yep, we would just sit there and just start, you know, we were farting around, or he would start playing a blues riff, and I'd throw something in there on the, on the bass just for fun, 
you know, and Rob would start singing some crazy stuff. And uh, yeah, that just came out. We wanted to put that on because that was something that happened in the studio all the time. And um, our, one of our roadies, Eric Walsh, his, his dad says, you know, what the hell's going on down there? Because when it, we, we would, you know, we would play Pennsylvania a lot. You know, Pennsylvania was like a second home for us and a lot of other New York bands. And, um, and that came from token entry playing in like Pennsylvania all the time. Um, like King of Prussia and Philly and all that stuff. So we would always stay at Eric's house and we'd be down like in their ground floor basement, screaming and yelling, carrying on everything. And, and one night, you know, we're messing around. Like, what the hell's going on down there? <laughs> and, and it was like, Oh, okay. You know, that was a very, cause we were all, you know, Oh crap. It's Eric's dad. We're trying. So we, uh, a little, little ode to Mr. Walsh. And to oh, okay. That's very cool. I was going to ask you, so who is Mr. Walsh? But there you go. Yeah, Eric's dad. Do you have a favorite song on the album? Man, I just loved playing all of them. They were so much fun to play. I mean, I mean, I always loved playing handouts. There were were some songs you just had a feeling from, you know, because maybe the lyrics represented more what you were feeling or you remember the circumstance under which it was written. And uh, so, yeah, you know, hand like not from You're Not Alone, really, but, you know, whenever we'd play No Reward, yeah, that was always a big one. Yeah, I noticed that uh, even though Handouts was kind of like your quote-unquote big single and you got the music video, that No Rewards kind of like the set closer regardless. Yeah. Real big call and response thing with the think about it and do it. So, I mean, I get it. And I think that song is sick. And that's the thing, too, is that those songs, on No Reward, just most of the songs seem longer, too. You know, these the songs are a little bit more condensed and focused on You're Not Alone. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you you figure stuff out over time. This is what works, and that's something that, that that Steve had a role in too. It's like, yeah, let's you know keeping things the way they were supposed to be. I remember though, um, I loved I loved playing Lottery and Regrets. Oh yeah, from that album. Aside from Handouts, are probably my two favorites. Yeah, I uh, I love Lottery and Regrets. I love. Uh, I think my favorite song on the album is The Reason, though. I think that's the. Oh, yeah, that. that's a good one. Really cool intro riff, but in all reality, I was talking about this with uh, a friend recently, too. I think Handouts, despite not being my favorite song, is like the best representation of what the band does. You know, it's got that catchy guitar riff. It's got a uh, a memorable chorus. It's still got that punk aesthetic to it. I think that's like the defining Black Train Jack song, despite it not being my favorite song, necessarily. Yeah, no, no, a lot of people like that, but that's like with any any band that you like, right? They're going to have the song that was like the more popular song that they're known for. And then you're going to have the stuff that you know really is what the band is. Right. You know, like handouts is a great song, but you know, the hard, the heavier stuff like regrets or the grander, you know, breakdowns and stuff and choruses and stuff like no reward is more what would really, you know, the feel of the band. You know what I mean? Do you have a preference between no reward and you're not alone? No, I just I I love different songs for different reasons. I can't say. I mean, I think you're not alone is is a is overall a better record to me. Um, you know, we were matured a little bit more. We had you know we knew what we were doing a little bit more. Um, but you know, you end up hearing you know no reward a lot more because you can't find you're not alone anymore. <laughs> right, right. We got to get and on that's the. That's like one of the great mysteries of life. I, I I don't I don't understand that one, but that's you know. That's the problem when, you know, that, that was the one thing that I, you know, I wasn't part of the whole business aspect of it. You know, I just loved playing music. I was really honored to be there and just like, let's, let's do what we got to do. And, um, you know, Roadrunner 
seemed like the best thing at the time. But when you when you don't have your publishing rights, that's what happens. You know, there were a couple of things that that took place that we were like, you know, what the hell is going on? Like, I remember, you know, all of us grew up with Thrasher Skate Rock, right? Like those Skate Rock tapes, when those things came out, it was like, oh, man, yeah. And we had an opportunity to be on a Thrasher Skate Rock release and or or a Thrasher video compilation or something like that. And uh, and Roadrunner wouldn't do it. And we were, you know, we were like struggling to understand why not that because that's part of who we were. We wanted to do that. What would you have done differently with this album that you didn't get to do? Things, you know, obviously we didn't do another record after you're not alone. Right. I would have wanted to be able to tour more on that record. Um, and I think that it could have done a lot more. We could have done some other, we had other opportunities to go out and do some things that I think would have made a very big difference for where the band went. Um, but, you know, like at the time when, when the, the band ended, I wasn't thinking about any of these things, you know, things were at a point where, for for different personal reasons it needed to end you know family situations life situations and it's, it was unfortunate looking back had none of had none of those issues been going on i would have loved to keep touring it a lot a lot of the stuff that came after and some of the bands ernie did were songs that we had lined up to be black range jack songs you know it, it, it could have had a more a more fruitful life you know that record it could, we could have done a lot more with it. So I, I, I will not say that I have any you know, regrets about it. It's just the way things worked out. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and I guess I'll ask you now, is it true that the first Gray Area album was supposed to be the third Black Train Jack album? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the songs on there we had, we had played as Black Train Jack. So, you know, and I'm sure Ernie, you know, he had other things that he wanted to do and he he was always he had so much stuff coming out of him that he had to do something different you know he had to do something new if not black train jack um so that was a bummer but you know it it is what it is now you and rob go on to form nine lives afterwards yes. and ernie does gray area so was there was that the divide ernie and you and rob were having some sort of conflict no, it was, I mean, Rob, Rob did not want the band to end when it ended. I mean, none, I, I don't know if any of us really did, but I, I knew personally it was at a point where with other things going on, it, it couldn't continue the way it was. Um, but no, you know, Rob and I had just stayed in touch and started doing nine lives and that was okay. You know, and then Ernie started doing his thing. It wasn't like a, you know, I was still friends with Ernie. Yeah, we were we still talk. It was just a different, a different time. Did Nine Lives ever play Black Train Jack songs? No, I think I think you know some once in a while if we were somewhere and they're like, no, play handouts, okay, you know, <laughs> but but that's that's about it. No reward. The cover of it is baseball. Mm -hmm. You're not alone. The cover of it is orange and blue. Is this a Mets homage? A little bit, yeah. I mean, everyone, if, if you had to pick a team, would be, you know, oh, I'm trying to remember. Because Rob was a big Mets fan. I think Ernie was a Yankees fan. I could give a crap less. Um, so, 
Yeah, the color scheme. I don't. I don't remember how that worked out. But I knew. But one of the the the, the two covers though were meant to be particularly really representative of New York. Okay. I mean, that first cover, number three, is Lou Gehrig. That's when he gave his retirement speech because he had he had to leave for medical reasons. And you know, we have that. You know, the intro with with him. You know, today is the luckiest. I'm the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That's from his the know, speech on the farewell on the, speech. Yeah. That's, you know, a very, very New York moment, um, a unifying moment. And the sneakers over the telephone wires, I mean, at least it used to be, you, you know, you'd go down the streets in Astoria or different parts of Brooklyn and Queens, and that's that's was there. That's what kids did. So to me, retroactively, it's kind of you knowing that this is the last Black Train Jack album because there was a show called The White Rapper Show. Are you familiar with this? No. Okay, well, MC Search of Third Base from New York had a show on VH1 called The White Rapper Show, and when he would kick somebody off the show, he would throw their shoes up on a telephone wire. Yeah. So this show ends where the next one will be left off. That's it. Take off your shoes. Time for you to step off. Step off. <laughs> That's cool. And to me, this is you saying, hey, we're out. We're, we're, we're stepping off. That is a interesting perspective. <laughs> but completely unfounded but it's a cool it's a cool way of thinking ah yeah you know you know they knew we didn't know okay. <laughs> but the sneakers were a very iconic new york thing right right before black train jack you were a roadie for token entry you mentioned so mm -hmm. why is weight of the world the best token entry album well, that could be your perspective, that it's the best token entry <laughs> album. I think there'd be many people out there who disagree with you. They started playing music that was a little more definitely influenced by the Chili Peppers at the time. The first record and Jaybird, you know, that's how I knew token entry. But uh, I would not say that I would give anyone reason to think that it's the best album in the world. I could not articulate that. It's like anything. People have expectations based on what a band is. And they don't want it to change. And some people stay true to that, and that's cool. And they, they do the same type of thing, and, and yet they introduce new things, and they make it amazing. Like, there are plenty of bands that do that. At that time, Token actually went in a different direction. If you take that record out of the context of what Token Entry was and played it for someone who may like that kind of music, then I think it's a great record. What kind of tours did Roadrunner put you on to support this record? Uh, well, it wasn't them putting us on like we we were pretty much good about picking our tours. You know, they would support them to the extent that they could or that they thought they were supposed to. Um, you know, we toured the U.S. with the Mighty Mighty Boston's, which was fantastic. Those guys, I love those guys, always will. They they've done more for for bands. I mean, they'll see a band, they like a band and they'll, they'll you know, they really treated people well and they were fantastic guys still are fantastic guys um and you know so we did stuff with them we did down by law uh sick of it all you know we'd play one-offs with different people like at city gardens you know played with quicksand there you know when you mentioned well, i was talking about the boston's before i saw nate albert last week i got to say i hadn't seen nate in you know probably 20 years i got to say thank you again for what the boston's did for us because they were so amazing. It was just one of those things. Like, I always loved the Boston's. And then, like, Dickie, they, they got in touch. Like, we want to take Black Train Jack on tour. 
you know, what, what, what do they owe us? You know what I mean? Like it was just the, they're the kindest guys in the world. Definitely well-respected in the punk and hardcore community because one, they were badasses and they would beat the yeah. shit out of you. And two, just, uh, the, the other way around. They're nice guys that, I mean, they had so much success. And then Dickie, you know, of course, was the, he worked on Jimmy Kimmel's show mm-hmm. for years as well, which is a crazy uh, career trajectory. Roadrunner, when we did Europe, our first European tour was a sick of it all. And that was great. And then they set up a tour and we ended up, we were headlining. And then the band that went on before us was this band Graveyard Rodeo. And that was like, what the hell? What is this? You know, they were like uh, the metal band. It just, that's where we really saw problems was, it, you know, at least from the band's perspective is, you know, we'd go to Europe and we did great, but it was like the marketing out there was like, it's being done by metal people, you know, and the, God bless them, but they do not understand how to market a punk rock band. Well, 94 is an interesting year for Roadrunner, and I talk about this on every episode, but we'll talk about it now. Okay. Because the year that they that You're Not Alone comes out, I know technically, you know, Black Train Jack puts out a record in 93, but 94 has the weirdest lineup of bands, and the only yep. ones that go anywhere are the metal bands. So you got yep. Die Monster Die, who are like a grunge band. That record does nothing. You got The Moon Seven Times, who are like an indie rock band. You're Not Alone, which at least has a music video, so it's mm-hmm. a little bit more. And you had the kind of the hardcore. I know, I know it may not be a lot, but Moon Seven yeah. Times didn't get a music video. No, it's true. And then you have like Obituary, you know, you know, and Machine yeah. Head. So it's it's inter- oh, uh, Buzz Oven was the last episode I just did, and they had some other internal problems, but ultimately Roadrunner wouldn't have known what to do with them, regardless of their right. conflict. So it's interesting that Roadrunner definitely wanted to find a new identity outside of metal, but didn't seem to have the strategy in place to make that happen. Well, you know, to me, what it was like, you know, and again, yeah, they, that, that's what they wanted to do. And we, because of the Hawker background and, and Howie Abrams was our A&R guy, who to this day is a friend of mine, was a fantastic guy. You know, we, we had faith. in. We said, OK, look, they're, they're trying to expand. This is what they're doing. You know, they're doing an indie thing and they want to get the punk rock thing and this thing. And, you know, but but with the exception of very few people who knew what was going on, like, and how to do things. It's like, Hey, you know how to make donuts. Okay. Here, uh, go ahead and, uh, and make ice cream. Now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to make, I know how to make donuts. I make the best donuts in the world. I make ice cream. You can do it. In fact, why don't you also start making tofu dogs? Go ahead. You know, you, you put people in a position where they knew how to market metal bands. They knew they had their contacts. They had they had their zines. They had their radio people. They had they knew how to do it. And you almost you almost can't blame them for that for this saying, hey, and they go to the they go to the who they know. And it doesn't work. Because, right. You know, they're they're not a metal band. It was a little distressing, particularly in Europe. What is your fondest memory of making this record? Specifically, You're Not Alone, not just Black Train Jack. I got to do a publicity thing. At one time, there was some like publicity thing that Roadrunner sent us to, and I had to go with Pete Steele. Oh, wow. From Typo Negative. Pete and I met in front. We were talking. Funniest guy in the world. I was always afraid of him because I'm like, look at this guy's a monster. I'd never met him before. I always liked Typo Negative. And then I got to hang out with him that night. I was like, oh, my God, that was so cool. 
What did you guys do? You just went to like a press junket or something together? Yeah, it was it was a thing like I, I forgot what it was. It was like a big thing for for a lot of these different like metal independent magazines and stuff at this club. And we had to be there to sit there and like talk to people. They would come by and talk to us. And it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was a little weird because he's huge and I'm short and it looked pretty probably looked like they said, oh, Pete, <laughs> I see your child is with you, you know. Uh, you know, at, at that time when we did the record, I mean, that was, that was our main thing. You know, the band had gotten to a point where we were, we were touring a lot, we were playing a lot of shows and th- it was like, I was like living in a fantasy. I'm a bass player in this band. That's actually people like we're playing music. I mean, you can't, you know, talk about grateful. Like that's the most incredible thing in the world to be able to do. It was just, you know, and and so just just the whole like the whole feeling around it at the time and knowing what I was part of was like being you know part of New York hardcore, being part of this different thing, and you know it just it felt so good. It was so wonderful. And then also, you know, we were we were a pretty positive band, and we would the you know we would go we would go on tour, and there would be people who would approach us that were very moved by something you know you know i got one letter one time because this was like pre-internet so you want to talk about aging right and this this guy wrote and he said hey you know i i i was was into drugs my you know girlfriend was with me she was abused and she wanted to commit suicide and all of a sudden it's like terrible terrible thing and the guy was in a really bad place like basically wanting to just you know be done with it and then you know, he listened to the album and it was positive and it was uplifting for him. And he, he gave up alcohol and drugs and he got his life back on track and all this other stuff. And it was like, you know, you get that letter and, you know, you just say, well, that's it. Everything we did was worth it. This had such a powerful impact on one person's life that it basically saved them. And if you could be that sort of a positive influence, like, and that's what I was feeling in the band at the time. I, I remember when we started, I was like, my God, could you imagine if people get out of this, like what some people got out of like seven seconds, like the way seven seconds influenced me and minor threat influenced me. Like, could you imagine if, if, if we have that sort of an impact on people and, you know, not to the extent like seven seconds or minor threat, but we did. And I felt it sometimes. And it was just a miraculous feeling. And I'm, you know, grateful to Ernie and Rob and Nick for letting me be part of it. And to this day, I mean, it made me, it made me who I am, you know, the experiences I had, it was just a great, great time. I told you earlier that this is the most requested episode. And the two reasons for that is one, the innovation that we talked about with the, the style of music and two, the positivity of the, mm-hmm. the lyrics, you know, that really did touch people. And whereas black train Jack may have not gone gold or whatever, Everyone that did like your band still loves your band. You know what I mean? It's very yeah. dedicated fan base. And like you said, very passionate about what they did. So maybe you didn't have the uh, widespread influence of a seven seconds, but the people you did touch, you touch deeply. And I think yeah. there's something to be said about that. Well, we didn't have a chance to screw it up because it was only two records. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it, it is funny that, you know, 25 years later, we still get people. It's like, oh, my God, you know, like you, you know about black train jack like i we i i would fill in with h2o sometimes if their guitar player couldn't play um you know adam would switch over to guitar and i'd play bass um just once in a while and sometimes i would just travel with them for the heck of it so we were in indonesia 
and these kids are waiting in the hotel, these three kids, and they got a black train jack shirt, like a you're not alone shirt. Like, oh black train jacks, how on earth, how the hell do you know about this? You know, like, but it was such an honor, like, oh my God, it really it's really humbling to know that something you did. I mean, there's some kid in Indonesia who is somehow being positively influenced by something that you did 25 years ago. That's an honor. Well, there you have it, and there it is. One of the nicest and most gracious guys you'll ever meet and a band that probably didn't get their due. If you've never listened to Black Train Jack, it's not too late. But without hyperbole, this was by far the most requested episode I've ever had, so I hope it made all your dreams come true. And if it did, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Pogo 5 Stars, or email any questions or feedback to meetmeetpod at gmail.com for a chance to make yet another dream of yours come true of being featured on the Coyote Corner. Next week, Chris McLean from Stretch Armstrong reflects on Black Train Jack with me. And then myself and a guest are tackling Madball's monster debut for Roadrunner Records. Set it off. I can't wait to talk to you then, but until that time comes, this has been the Meet Me Podcast. And yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye. What's up, Meepsters? This is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrasher Slashers on the Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday where myself and a guest usually discuss a movie and an album of their choice and the WrestleMania from the same year. But this week, I'm joined by incendiary frontman and longtime friend Brendan Garone for a special Rockumentation episode where we discuss the 1999 home video of the legendary and highly lauded New York Hardcore documentary, which features Madball, Crown of Thorns, VOD, and many more. We're also discussing Brendan's introduction to hardcore and everything currently happening in the world of incendiary. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your Stiff Shots Podcast Network shows at and join the overly caffeinated fun with Thrasher Slashers on the road to WrestleMania.